Shabbat Shalom, everyone. It's good to see everyone here. For those who are visiting today, my name's Ron Gittleman. I am not the rabbi, nor do I ever aspire to be. Um, Every once in a while, I ask the rabbi as an elder and as the president to be able to speak when I feel God has given me a message. And this time he has, but this time it's probably going to be a little bit harder for me because it's going to require me to reveal some things about myself that I would have preferred to keep hidden. But God has spoken and has pushed, and so I've got to do what he has said. And one of those issues that people may not realize is for a long time I've been an angry person. Men, some of you have borne the brunt of it. I think the rabbi has a couple of times. There are others. My wife has borne with me. My first wife, unfortunately, that was part of the cause of our um, demise of our marriage. But for many years, I was angry. I would lash out. I lashed out at a boss once, but before he could fire me, I found a new job. And he deserved it, but that's beside the point. Um, I tried to keep it private. I would go home, I'd rant, I'd rave, I'd be angry. Things happen at work, I would be a very angry man. I went to anger management once, thought I had it under control. And, well, when you do that, then more trials, more tests come. And needless to say, while it was better, it wasn't enough. Um, I wasn't abusive, so don't go to Dorothy thinking, hey, did he beat you up in his anger? Um, At most, we'd just have a little spat, and it would kind of start to go out of control, but bless her for her grace and mercy to be able to bring me down and prevent me from doing something I might regret. Well, in April, I got the opportunity to go to the next best place to hell, which I call Orlando, Florida, (laughs) Um, only because I went in April, and it was hot, it was humid, it was sticky, And even though I grew up in the South, I don't like hot, humid, and sticky. And I go to this conference every year, but this year the speaker, his name was a guy named Sean Acor. He's a positive psychologist, really good. He's very popular, Harvard-trained. He went to Harvard Div School, and he learned about positive psychology, helping you to be able to get a grip on your life. So I bought one of his books in advance. I had a gift card for Barnes & Noble. I said, okay, I'll buy it. I'll read it, read up on him. And I went to the conference, and at that point, he talked about gratefulness and what he calls the gratefulness challenge. And that is writing three things for which you are grateful every day for at least 21 days. So I started, and now probably 10 months later, I'm still doing it every day. Anyone who's friends with me on Facebook will see that. And it was great. Every morning, get up, read my couple chapters of the Bible, and then I write down three things I'm grateful for. I do it on Facebook, so it makes me think, and it will always be there as long as um, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't erase it. And it's for me, but others, I'm hearing it inspires others, and that's what I'm grateful for. And so I put it in writing. And so over the past nine months, I've seen a dramatic change. I'm happier. I walk into work smiling. Hi, how are you? I find that little things that used to get to me don't. And so, yeah, I still have a little anger, but doesn't everybody? And it's not at the same level it was before. But I also changed my reality, because that's the second part of it. It's great to wake up and be grateful every morning, but then you have to change the reality. And that change was, I'm going to focus on the good, not the bad. And I actually have a thing printed on, I printed out and put out by my desk every day, so when I forget, I remember it. And it says, we'd spend too much time thinking about what can go wrong in the worst case, and instead we need to make that time go to what can go right and how we can make the world a better place. 
And so it's changing the outlook on life and work. And it's great, secular book, secular guy, I can read and gain something from it. But is there something in the Bible? Is there a study in the Bible where I could learn from this and where I could pass it on? You know, it's really good to have all this stuff out there in the world, but there's got to be a case study in the Bible. In my work, people are always trying to sell me things, and I'd like to see case studies and talk to people about how it's going. So I've been praying for months, and God, in his soft-spoken voice, kept reminding me of King David, a hero of our faith, a hero of Judaism, a hero of Christianity. And so today, we're going to look at King David. I want us to see how he went from a point of great gratefulness, great excitement, to ungratefulness and sin, and then back to gratefulness and how he changed his reality. I believe he's the best example, and from his life we can learn not only about being grateful, but what can happen when we become ungrateful. We can also learn about how the lack of gratefulness can bring one into sin and how repentance can bring us back to a point where we can be grateful and also change the reality in which we live. And so I'm starting today with 2 Samuel 7. If you have a Bible, you want to turn there, that's fine. So here's what happens. David has just come back from great victory. The ark is now in Jerusalem. He was dancing. He was joyful. It was a great time for Israel. And he decides, you know what? Here I am in this big palace, but that ark is in a tent. And he tells Nathan the prophet, I'm going to build a house. And Nathan says, go ahead. But then God has other plans and tells Nathan, go back to David and tell him, no, your son will do it. Well, some of us would be very angry about that. But then King David, instead, he went and he thanked God. And so I begin with 2 Samuel seven eighteen through 29. This is what King David said. Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord, there is none like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt? You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant in his house. Do as you promise, so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer, O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Pretty good response to when God says no. How many of us, when God says no, we go, thank you, God? Um, Most of the time, it's like, 
God, how can you do this to me? God, I'm angry at you. God, I get mad at you. So David went on. Everything was good. And um, David was grateful, and he was blessed. But then one night, David decides to go on the roof of his house. And David's eye catches somebody bathing. And you have to understand, this is back in the time the baths were up on top of the roof, you know, where people really couldn't see you. They didn't have a little bathroom with a shower and a curtain. And here he sees this beautiful woman. Um, for those of us who are older, remember the time the movie 10. This woman was probably 12. Um, she was extremely, extremely beautiful. And so he inquired about her. And they came and said, this is the wife of Uriah. And David still wanted her. And David called her in. And they slept together. And they had a child. She became pregnant. And did David go and repent? No, David tried to cover it up. So he calls Uriah back, says, go sleep with your wife. You've done good. But Uriah, being the humble man he is, refuses and lays on the floor and won't do it. And this happens several times, so David decides, I've got to get rid of Uriah. He um, tells his people, pull back and leave Uriah at the front line, so he dies. End of story, right? Not quite. Nathan the prophet got in the way. And so if you turn to 2 Samuel 12, this is one of the most sordid episodes of the Bible, um, of the Tanakh, and it's a sad episode, but yet we can learn so much from it. So in, that verse tw- in chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David's response, he seethed in anger and said, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Righteousness, false righteousness maybe. But then Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Wow, that's kind of a strong rebuke. Maybe people today need to be rebuked. But what did David do? Did David go seething and kill Nathan like Ahab tried to do with Elijah? Did David run out and say, you know what, I'm better than you and I'm just going to do what I do? No, David repented. David repented humbly before the Lord God, said he was sorry. God sees the heart, not just the words. And David's heart was one of repentance. And for that, God allowed him to live. 
But things weren't all hunky-dory great after that because once you do something, you can't take it back. There's no way that David could go back in time, even though we have time travel shows, and change what he did. And he had to live with the consequences. And the consequences were severe. They might seem unfair, but they were severe. And the first thing, the child born to him in Bathsheba would die. His family would be ruined. He would lose his kingdom, but God's promises would remain. See, David suffered the consequences. That child did die. His son Absalom took the kingdom and then, not only that, slept with his wives and concubines in front of everybody, embarrassed him, humiliated him. And his daughter Tamar was raped, and the sons killed the rapist of Tamar. David had to flee Jerusalem. His son Absalom was killed, and he mourned over it, that even though people were glad to see him dead. And then David returns to Jerusalem, regains his kingship, praises God, ensures the second son born to him in Bathsheba, Solomon, would become king, just as God said it would be. But nothing ever turned out the same as it was before that fateful night when he took Bathsheba. Now these passages show us how we are to be grateful for what God has given us, and it also shows us the consequences of ungratefulness. For as Nathan said, David was ungrateful. David could have had any single woman in that kingdom. David could have walked out and said, she's beautiful, I want her. But no, he had to have someone else's wife. So how does this apply in our lives today? First, we need to be grateful for what God has given us and be content with this. God has given us so much for which to be grateful, even though at times it doesn't seem like it's so great. I know that, you know, I'm not rich. I don't live a fancy life. And there are times I wish I could have been a CEO and I could change things, change the world. But I'm content with where God has me. I have a house. I have a roof over my head. I have three wonderful, great children, a great wife, a great job. I have everything I could need. Um, I don't need more, but I can always ask and wait for God. But I'm content with where I am. Second, we need to get rid of ungratefulness. So if we have ungratefulness in our lives... We need to get rid of it, because as we can see, it leads to a great sin. First, crime. People can get so upset at someone because they're ungrateful, whether a spouse or someone else, and we want others so that they end up killing them, hurting them. We steal from others because we want more. We feel we don't have enough. Crime can be really bad. Look what David did. He had Uriah killed. In today's world, he would have been taken out, He would have been thrown in prison. Um, Imagine if our president did that and got caught. You know, unless they decided to cover it up, it would happen. Look at what, for those of us who lived in the 1970s, Richard Nixon. He tried to cover up something he really wasn't in charge of, and the cover-up led to more and led to crime, and he paid the consequences. Unbridled anger and ungratefulness can lead us to great crime. I believe most of the crime today is a result of ungratefulness, whether it's theft, whether it's murder. We want something someone else doesn't have. It can lead to adultery. Be thankful for the spouse God has given you. You know, I'm not perfect. My wife's not perfect. No spouse here is perfect. Anybody who has a perfect spouse, please raise your hand. I'm sure over the years. Okay, Rabbi, uh, you know, they're not 100% perfect. Sometimes we get unsatisfied. 
We get ungrateful. We think, gee, if it had been this, and I've done this at times. I have a great wife, but at times that ungratefulness can try to seep in. If we forget that God gave us our spouse, if we aren't grateful for who they are, someone else will come along and either us, our eyes, or our spouse's eyes will wander. We need to be grateful for the person God has given us. And I'll tell you, many marriages would be better or saved if people took this attitude instead of wandering away because they aren't grateful for what they have and they want more. And I will tell you, the grass is not always greener on the other side. It looks green, but it's not. I hear those jokes about, you know, how Satan, someone goes to hell, the president, whoever, they throw a name in there, and everything's great, and they're about golf with their buddies, and they say, okay, I want to go there, and they get there, and it's really hell, and Satan says, well, I was just politicking you. <laughs> Remember how grateful you are. Another horrible, horrible result of ungratefulness is greed and mistreatment of others. And we see this every day in this country. Many CEOs aren't grateful for what they have, so they work to get more. And in the process, lower-level employees, those who do all the work that helps that company succeed, end up getting cut and thrown out. People who work in the stock market, you can make a 4% profit. That should be good. You're making a profit. But no, they want 10%. So therefore, you've got to increase your profit. And how do they do that? Cut expenses, cut people, ship things overseas. Um, People want increased stock price. Investors want that. Anyone who works in the market will tell you. And as a result, we see that. Where I work, we saw an instance of that where a group's budget ran over $7 million dollars. The people who are laid off were not the people who should have been monitoring the budget and approving the spending, but the people who do the hard everyday work. Employees lose jobs and livelihoods all in the pursuit of what? More. Hired help is mistreated as employers don't want to spend more. It's a vicious cycle. I was talking to someone on the bus yesterday, a guy I ride with. He's a pretty bitter man. He, you know, he's a Minnesota Vikings fan, so that kind of explains it for those who are in football. But um, he was complaining about Walmart, and I said, you know what, I grew up where Walmart started. I know, I've always admired Sam Walton. Sam Walton made his clerks rich, he gave them stock. He cared about his employees. He didn't want Chinese goods. The minute he stepped aside, the minute he died, in came the people who said, let's go to China, let's do bigger. We don't have to pay people more. We don't have to make our employees rich, bigger, better, more, more, more. And as a result, we see what happens. I hardly ever shop there anymore um, because of what they've done. It's sad all over the world. Uh, Ungratefulness can help us not to see the greater good in tragic circumstances. Many times people, I was talking to Tom this morning about somebody, something really bad happens in their life, and what's their first action? I don't believe in God anymore. God hurt me. Why didn't God stop this? Well, I want to bring a story up of somebody who changed, did a change out of tragic circumstances. For those of you who know college football, Lloyd Carr is one of the greatest coach, was one of the greatest coaches of the game and coached at University of Michigan. His son was a quarterback, successful there. I don't think he ever really went pro, though. And their five-year-old son, Chad, came down with a, was diagnosed with one of the most horrible types of brain cancer you can imagine. This one, there is no hope. Radiation will only extend your life eight months. They call it DIPG. They went to look for research. 
There isn't any. Only 400 kids a year get it. So the people who are the powers that be that decide where to um, allocate the money said this isn't worth it. So what did they do? They started a foundation, started raising money, started finding ways to get research. Well, young Chad died this past year in his dad's arms. It was very sad to see. But I still follow them. The mother is still grieving. You're going to grieve. You shouldn't be. I'm grateful, God, he died. You know, that would be horrible. Instead, while in their grief, they're trying to do things to raise awareness of this disease so that no other, while it can't help them, no other child should have to go through this. And so it's been grateful. And so they took a horrible circumstance. To watch a child die is something of a disease like that that saps the life out of them is a horrible thing, and no parent should ever have to go through it. But they turned it around, and they took it, and they made a good thing out of it. And a little later, at the conclusion, I'm going to share a video of someone else who took a very horrible circumstance and turned it around. Lastly, it can lead to bitterness and anger. And I'm there. I've been there. I have every reason to be angry. I can justify it. I could sit here and justify it. My mom was taken by cancer 40 years ago. You know, I was bullied in school, being the only Jewish kid, in, uh, other than my brothers, being the only really, Jew- oh, I'm sorry, only really Jewish family in the area. You know, I was bullied. People never took me seriously. My dad announces his engagement to a non-Jewish person um, at my bar mitzvah to my mother's family. That was horrible, and I bore that for a while, but by God's grace, he apologized, and we've made up, and we have a great relationship. So yes, I have every reason to be angry. Life hasn't treated me well, and yes, I miss my mom. It's been 40 years. I was 12 when, almost 12 when she died. I was 9 when she got sick. I hardly saw her, and I wonder what it would be like if she were here to see, sit with Reuben and read while he's reading books that no second grader reads, or to sit there and play piano while Naomi plays violin and dances, or to sit there with Daniel and work with him on his math and other things, she would love it. My dad did remarry, and after a while, my stepmother and I became good friends. Um, She was a great stepmother to me. But sadly, in 2003, she too was taken with cancer. She had fought it for 20 years, and she died, and I had the opportunity to go down there and minister to her and my dad and my stepsister and stepbrother. And out of that horrible circumstance, I have great relationships with them. Uh, I went over, took the whole family to Colorado for my niece's wedding. Uh, My stepbrother and uh, stepsister, the whole families, my niece's nephews, we get along great because I went down there at that time, whereas my other brothers wouldn't do that. And it's been good. I could have remained bitter. I could have remained angry. And eventually it would have caught up to me and I could have lost everything, job, wife, kids. But God turned it around because I learned to be grateful. But again, once it's done, once you're grateful, you need to change that reality. It's a start, but you need to live it. It means remembering why are we grateful. It means changing who we are. We don't need to be angry or grumpy. It means smiling, spraying the happiness. Smile to somebody you see. I walk home from work, and I'll just smile to someone and say, hi, they respond back. And I walk through an area that many people at work tell me I'm really crazy for walking through. I don't see it. But I say hi to them, and they enjoy it. It means cheering up others when they need it. 
It means being there for prayer, cheering them up, telling them you're there for them. It means sharing the gospel through our words and our lives, helping others. If we live a life of gratefulness, we should help others become grateful. Being grateful and changing who we are is part of the gospel. It is the gospel. Be grateful to God. Let people see. You don't have to stand out there and tell people they're going to hell if they don't repent. Live it. My neighbors, we have many Jewish neighbors, and they see it. They treat my kids like they're grandkids. They know that we all run Jewish lives, that we live a Jewish life. And that does more for them. And they've said they're planning to come December 3rd when my son hits bar mitzvah. So, you know, otherwise they're not going to come, but maybe one day they will. The only time we can't change is when we're dead, so we need to change now. Now I'm going to ask Joshua to run a video that I've queued up. It's about a man named Horatio Spofford. Um, He was a hymnist, a member of the Presbyterian Church in the 1870s. He suffered through something nobody should suffer through. Go ahead, Josh. Get the sound up. His wife, Anna, and their five children. Horatio Spafford was a well-known lawyer and businessman in Chicago in the 1860s, where he lived with his wife, Anna, and their five children. He had invested heavily in real estate along the shores of Lake Michigan. He was a prosperous man and a devout Christian. However, in 1870, a series of events began to turn Horatio's world upside down. That year, Horatio and Anna's only son died of scarlet fever at the tender age of only four. A year later, while the Spaffords were still grieving the loss of their son, the Great Chicago Fire broke out and destroyed nearly every one of Horatio's investments. His entire life savings was gone. Aware of the toll these disasters had taken on his family, Horatio decided to take his wife and four daughters on a holiday to England, where they planned to accompany the famous evangelist D.L. Moody on his next crusade. However, just before they set sail, a last-minute business development forced Horatio to delay. Not wanting to ruin the family holiday, he persuaded his family to go on as planned and he would follow along later. With this decided, Horatio stayed in Chicago while Anna and the girls boarded the French steamship Ville du Havre to set sail for England. But several days later, Horatio received devastating news. The Ville du Havre had been struck by an iron sailing vessel from England. The ship sank in only 12 minutes, 
claiming the lives of 226 passengers. It was the worst disaster in naval history until the sinking of the HMS Titanic 40 years later. The next day, he received a telegraph from Anna from Wales. It read these six words. Survived alone. What should I do? The Spafford's four daughters were among those who perished. After hearing the terrible news, Horatio boarded the next ship out of New York to join his bereaved wife. During his voyage, the captain of the ship called him to the bridge. A careful reckoning has been made, he said, and I believe we are now passing the very place where the Ville du Havre sank. And it was there, while staring into the watery grave of his beloved daughters, that Horatio penned the words to the great hymn, It is well with my soul. story we see a man who had everything, very wealthy, lost it all, and at the site where his daughters died, he could pen what's become in the church one of the greatest hymns written, It Is Well With My Soul. His story doesn't stop there. His church deemed that, the Presbyterian church deemed he was under divine judgment because, well, his son died, his daughters died, he lost everything. So he went and formed his own group a sect that became called the Overcomers. In 1881, he went to Jerusalem with 10 others and set up a group called the American Colony, engaging in philanthropic work amongst the people of Jerusalem, whether Jewish, Christian, or Muslim. The motives were to help people not proselytize, and they they gained the trust of all these people. They ran soup kitchens, hospitals, orphanages, and other charitable ventures in the land. Today he is buried in Mount Zion Cemetery in Jerusalem, and because he was able to be grateful in some of the worst circumstances possible, God used him to do great work overseas, work that might not have been possible if these events hadn't happened or if he had just chosen to turn from God, because I know many people, and I don't know how I would handle such a situation, and yet he was grateful for where God had brought him. So today's our choice. Live a life of gratefulness and happiness or a life of ungratefulness and sin. It's up to you. I will say this works for me. I wake up every day, read a couple of chapters of the Bible, and think and write three things for which I'm grateful every day. And I've seen transformation in my life, and I know it can transform yours too. Thank you.